Welcome to Amici, News and Insights from the New York Courts. I'm John Carr. In today's Diversity Dialogue segment, we're proud to feature Rosemary Garland Scott, who wears three hats and overseen ethics standards in the courts. As a court system special counsel for ethics, she is responsible for developing and conducting ethics training programs and for overseeing all aspects of the operations of the Judicial Campaign Ethics Center. In addition, she oversees non-judicial ethics, which provides ethics advice to the court's more than 15,000 non-judicial employees. And she serves as staff counsel on the Advisory Committee for Judicial Ethics. Previously, she was chief of staff at the New York State Judicial Institute. Ms. Garland Scott began her legal career as an assistant law clerk to the Honorable Paul G. Feynman, now an associate judge of the New York State Court of Appeals and she was later Principal Appellate Court Attorney in the Appellate Division's First Department. She earned her bachelor's degree in business administration and in management with minors in economics and international business from Northwood University, and she earned a Master of Business Administration from Long Island University, CW Post. She earned her law degree at Toro Law Center. Rosemary, thank you for your time today. Uh, we, we know where you went to school. We know where you work. Um, but let's take a couple steps back to the beginning. Uh, where, do you, where, do you, where did you grow up? What is your uh, cultural heritage? opportunity to talk with you about the work of the court system's ethics department. Uh, my family and I are immigrants from the Bahamas. My formative years were spent there, and while I was still a rather young child, My family immigrated to South Florida in search of better opportunities for themselves and their seven children, of which I am the third eldest. My siblings and I were all raised in a fairly strict Caribbean Christian home. My father was more of a tough disciplinarian, while my mother, who was always soft-spoken, was equally impactful. I love the distinct nature of the Bahamian culture and look forward to every opportunity to visit. One very unique aspect of Bahamian culture is a festive parade known as Junkanoo. It is a music and dance form that originated in the Bahamas during slavery and has remained essentially unchanged to this day. What would you like um, other Americans to know about uh, the Bahamas and and what it is and where it is and, and what life is like there? Well, the Bahamas is a Caribbean island. It is uh, it, it's, uh, approximately 21 miles long. It's not a very big island, Nassau, Bahamas, that is. And uh, it has, like I said, very distinct culture. It is, it's, a, it's a great place to live. Um, I enjoy it. I, I travel there very frequently. I just love uh, the, you know, just the culture. It's, it's, um, it's a wonderful place. You know, the, the interesting thing about the Bahamas is that it really has two major industries, and sometimes one may dominate the other, so we just say two. And those are uh, tourism and banking. Banking and finance is a, a very big industry there. So it, it's, um, it, it's a very, one of actually one of the more wealthier uh, Caribbean islands or islands in the Caribbean. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I didn't realize it was that small. You know, and for a, yeah. a island that tiny has has really had quite a significant impact and continues to have a significant impact, you know, both culturally and economically. Yes. Yes. Well, the, the Bahamas itself is made up of over 700 islands, but the primary island, and many of those are smaller keys that are uninhabited. 
But the uh, the main island is Nassau, and it is like I said, uh, you know, it's the capital of the Bahamas, and it's it's the place where everything pretty much happens. Huh. Well, with, with that with that many islands, I guess you either got to have a boat or you got to be a really really good swimmer, huh? <laughs> Perhaps one of the two. <laughs> Who are your heroes or role models uh, or most important early influences? Oh, undoubtedly, my mother tops the list of the role model in my life. At an early age, she instilled in my siblings and me the importance of working hard and developing good character and moral values. She always emphasized that there was no substitute for treating everyone with compassion, kindness, and respect, regardless of who they are. She also taught me to never view adversity as a negative. She would often say that it is in the challenging times that a person develops true character and finds their inner strength. As for my heroes, proudly they are and always have been Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Congressman John Lewis, James Farmer, and the many incredibly brave women and men of the civil rights movement who fought long and hard for social justice in efforts to achieve equal rights under the law. Their dedication and commitment to social change have resulted in the black people of this great nation overcoming significant obstacles, including the abolishment of separate but equal laws and the denial of their constitutional right to vote. I just believe that these individuals did tireless work and amazing courage to advance the rights of an oppressed people despite incredible suffering cannot be discounted and in my opinion, makes them heroes in every sense of the word. Now, much of what, much of what you just mentioned um, involves um, the law, legal challenges. Like a couple of the people you mentioned uh, may have been lawyers. Mm -hmm. You were well on your way to a career in business with your undergraduate and graduate um, degrees. What was it that steered you toward the law? Yes, I was on a defined path, career path in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I worked as a contract analyst for a few years. I performed data analyses of sales trending and forecasting for one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. Um, and it involved lots of formulas and calculations, but I enjoyed the work very much. However, after experiencing a life change, I realized that I had actually gotten off course and reminded myself that being a lawyer was one of my initial goals that I had set at a fairly young age. So with that goal at the forefront of my mind, I decided to quit my job and attend law school on a full-time basis, and the rest is history. Huh. Of course, much of what was achieved in the civil rights movement was achieved in the courts. And you, you mentioned yes. uh, you know, uh, Brown v. Board of Education. I mean, that was done by the courts. That wasn't done by the political branches. And uh, Right. Um, you know, so it's, it's interesting to me that the, the courts... Um, have in many ways been at the forefront in doing things that the political branches uh, were not ready or able to do. Now you spent played an important role. You spent uh, most, or maybe maybe even all, of your legal career in the courts. How did you end up in the court system, and why? And why do you stay? Well, shortly after graduating law school, I learned that. Uh, Judge Paul Feynman, who was then a justice of the New York State Supreme Court and now sits on the Court of Appeals, was in search of an assistant law clerk, which at the time was a rather new role in the court system. So 
I applied, and within a day or two, the judge called and offered me the uh, the position. It was a fantastic opportunity to work really closely with him, who I had heard nothing but good things about, and his staff to sit in on trials, to conference cases, and to learn various aspects of the law. Now, I stayed in the court system because I truly enjoyed the work. In late 2010, I believe it is, I accepted a position as a court attorney in the Appellate Division First Department, um, where I embraced the opportunity to gain rapid exposure to a wide range of legal issues and areas of law. Um, but in the roles that I've had thus far, in a few different areas of, of the court system, including my current position, I've had the opportunity to work with some truly motivated people who put forth just 110% every day, and they make working with them just a joy. So, yeah, that was my reason for staying. And that's a great reason. Let's uh, fast forward to, um, I guess, the present. Um, what is the Judicial Campaign Ethics Center, and uh, how did you come to have a position with it? Well, in 2004, the Unified Court System established the Judicial Campaign Ethics Center, which we just refer to as the JCEC. And the JCEC has several roles. First, it, it serves as a liaison to a subcommittee of the Advisory Committee for Judicial Ethics. And in this role, it issues quick and reliable responses just to uh, judicial candidates who have ethics questions and, you know, related to their campaign. And second, the JCEC provides campaign ethics training programs for judicial candidates. Now, initially, we also had a, another component to that, which was voter um, voter information. We, we sought to uh, provide information to voters on the judicial candidates, but that is no longer an aspect of the JCEC. Nevertheless, in its role as liaison to the, J to the Judicial Campaign Ethics Subcommittee, the JCEC provides this judicial candidates with these responses um, just to help them avoid actionable misconduct and help them ensure that, the can that candidates act in a way that will maintain public confidence in the judiciary. Well, if, if a judge or candidate wants a formal response, these responses are not published, so they only pertain to the particular candidate who submitted the inquiry. And so only that, that particular candidate... Um, actions taken in connection with that specific campaign will receive the protection of the Commission on Judicial Conduct. So by a written agreement with the Commission, a candidate who makes an inquiry and subsequently conforms his conduct during that window period, um, that, that candidate is presumed to have acted properly for purposes of any subsequent investigation. And the JCEC is just only authorized to answers inquiries from a candidate about his or her own proposed conduct and will not answer questions about the conduct of a candidate's opponent or inquiries, inquiries from third parties, nor will it answer um, inquiries about past conduct. So if, you know, if a candidate wants to say, hey, I've engaged in this particular conduct, you know, is this acceptable, is this ethically permissible, um, we're not authorized to do that because the whole idea is to prevent them from engaging in conduct that might be um, prohibited by the rules. As for how I came to the position, well, that's really quick. There was a job posting. I applied for it, and after a panel interview, was offered the opportunity. <laughs> well, that's a, that's very simple. Now, um, very simple. <laughs> but, um, 
let me give you a hypothetical. Let, let, let's, say, let's say you have a judicial election, and, and as you well know, New York has a hodgepodge of elected and appointed judges. Let's say there's a, a judicial election. Let's say there is an incumbent judge, so someone is already a judge, and there is someone who is not a judge. Are the ju judicial ethics rules equally applicable to, in that context, someone who is a judge and someone who is not but would like to be a judge? No. Generally, the rules governing judicial conduct prohibit sitting judges from participating in political activity. However, if the judge is seeking re-election or election to a higher judicial office, the rule prohibiting political activity does not apply. In that case, the judge or the non-judge candidate may personally participate in his or her own election campaign, um, but they, you know, subject to certain limitations. For example, judicial candidates may attend politically sponsored events and may appear at these gatherings with other candidates on their slate, even if some of these candidates are non-candidates for non-judicial office. Now, while the candidates for non-judicial office are not subject to the court's ethics rules, um, you know, for, for candidates and their limitations, the committee has cautioned that a judicial candidate may not be involved in a joint fundraiser with the non-judicial candidate, for example, let's say a person running for mayoral office, because the candidate for non-judicial office is not subject to the same exacting standards of the governing rule. That sounds all kind of complicated. What are, what are the most, com <laughs> what are the most uh, uh, common and what are the most difficult uh, queries that you, you get on ju judicial ethics? Well, the most common issues in judicial ethics are perhaps inquiries involving disqualification and whether a judge may serve um, in a particular extrajudicial capacity. Mm -hmm. um, I believe the more difficult inquiries are those where specific precedents have not yet been established. There is an odd nuance, nuance to the uh, factual circumstances, or the committee members have varying perspectives on how the matter should be handled. As for judicial campaign ethics, under, cam under campaign ethics rules, a judicial candidate um, may personally participate in, in the campaign. However, the most common questions tend to relate to the attendance of fundraisers and exactly uh, what candidates seeking clarification or those candidates are seeking clarifications on the scope of permissible activities as it pertains to campaign fundraisers. Hmm, I see. Um, are there any issues that have arisen in the context of social media um, that have changed the game a little bit? Well, there's always a, a danger, I believe, in, in social media. Um, what is permissible, what's not permissible, there is a danger in putting too much information out there. Um, the Advisory Committee on Judicial Ethics has examined the propriety of social media use and has generally advised that judges may use social media, but cautions them to exercise an appropriate degree of discretion in doing so. And so judges are committed to express a position, a position on social media, but they must ensure that any advocacy does not create an appearance of impropriety, and that they must be aware of the risk presented by approving or reposting others' comments. Um, and for judges in particular, they must be aware of not commenting on any pending or impending cases. Uh, judicial candidates also may permit their campaign committees. We have a couple of opinions on uh, the use of Facebook and Twitter, and more recently, Twitter. So judicial candidates may permit their campaign committees to like certain posts on Facebook and follow.
other candidates on Twitter. Um, but as a result of the coronavirus pandemic and the state-imposed guidelines on social distancing, the Advisory Committee on Judicial Ethics issued an advisory opinion fairly recently, actually late last year, uh, that uh, which permits candidates to attend virtual uh, political fundraising events during their window period. Um, in other words, candidates may now use social media for judicial campaign fundraising, something we would never have imagined would be ethically permissible. Sure, huh? Now let's let's uh, pivot to non-judicial ethics. Uh, what what sort of issues do you do you deal with, and most often in that context? The vast majority of inquiries that come through the non-judicial helpline involve the use of the issue of whether a non-judicial employee may engage in certain outside activities that may or may not meet the requirements of dual employment. Non-judicial ethics has an established advisory panel that reviews every inquiry by non-judicial employees and considers numerous factors, including the existence of any potential conflicts of interest. Um, you know, these are the things that could give someone looking from the outside in the wrong perspective of what is happening in the court. So uh, non-judicial ethics, however, uh, we don't issue written opinions. However, like all other areas of ethics, the inquiries that come in are highly confidential in nature. So anyone wanting to um, contact non-judicial ethics, you know, feel free to do so. You, they may also do so on an anonymous basis. I understand. Huh? Now, do you have enforcement powers? If uh, someone is behaving unethically, do you have a, a recourse? Well, for non-judicial employees, those matters are generally referred to the Office of the Inspector General, who is authorized to investigate allegations of employee misconduct. Um, the Judicial Campaign Ethics Center's authority is really limited to providing prospective ethics advice to those candidate and candidates, and so it's not charged with enforcing ethics violations. Candidates, we find the candidates are often disappointed and frustrated by the fact that we're not a disciplinary arm especially those seeking immediate redress, let's say for their opponents' perceived violations of campaign ethics rules. But as to whether there is recourse, we typically advise candidates that if they reasonably believe that their opponents may have violated campaign ethics rules, that they may choose to bring the matter to the, uh, their opponent's attention and perhaps share some relevant advisory opinions on the matter. Oftentimes, candidates do not intentionally violate these rules, but rather possible violations may be the result of their lack of knowledge or misunderstanding of the applicable campaign ethics rules. Alternatively, if the perceived violation was committed by a sitting judge, the matter may be brought to the attention of the Commission on Judicial Conduct. If the allegedly improper conduct was committed by a non-judicial candidate, a non-judge candidate, I'm sorry, who is an attorney, then the candidate may choose to file a complaint with the Attorney Grievance Committee. So you see there is actually some recourse. Oh, I see, I see. Let me let me change gears a little bit. Uh, last year, uh, Jay Johnson released a report commissioned by the Chief Judge that indicates the court system has a long way to go in achieving racial equality. Is there a role in that for the Ethics Council? Yes. Um, well, let me start by saying Jay Johnson's report was enlightening to many people to the extent it detailed a serious lack of racial equality within the court system. 
However, for many people of color, the findings were an unfortunate acknowledgement of conditions that many believe long existed. In early January, the Franklin H. Williams Commission held a town hall meeting entitled Dismantling uh, Systemic Racism in the Court. And it was disheartening to learn that discussion, um, in that discussion, that Secretary Johnson's recent report were not unlike those same issues that were identified in a previous investigation of systemic racism in the courts about 30 years prior. So, yes, we certainly have a long way to go in achieving racial equality. However, I do believe we can all do our part in, in the court system to achieve this endeavor, whether that involves providing training, mentoring, or diverse hiring panels. You know, we, we all have to do our part to, to make sure that we are um, bringing about the much-needed change in that area. As, as uh, counsel, as ethics counsel, I am available to any areas of the court that would like to, um, you know, to put something together. I'm certainly, I'm open to working with the commission. I, I sit on uh, hiring panels to ensure that diversity is, um, you know, being considered in even the, at the very basic level. And, um, and mentoring, mentoring other uh, court employees who are looking to advance, looking for opportunities to advance. So that's pretty much what uh, what I can do or what I believe I'm able to do in my role as ethics counsel. And since this is Women's History Month, let me ask you the same question with regard to sexual harassment. Are there any special rules or trainings on that topic? The issue of sexual harassment in the workplace is uh, widespread and has received significant media attention over the past few years. And we see this ongoing public dialogue about sexual harassment and, and progressive changes in how the issue is, is viewed. Um, but the ethics department does not have any specific rules or training for court employees on sexual harassment. I believe the human resources de department is tasked with providing this important training for new employees and also for new supervisors. I understand. And uh, since this is a diversity dialogue interview, let's wrap it up with this question. From your perspective, from what you've seen, from what you've experienced, is a court system genuinely committed to diversity? I believe the court system is committed to diversity. I think it's apparent from the Chief Judge's Excellence Initiative I believe in her leadership role. She has stated in no uncertain terms that the court system embraces diversity, equity, and inclusion as core values essential to the judiciary's mission to deliver fair and timely justice and to recruit and retain a workforce that reflects the state's rich diversity. I also believe that the mission of the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commission to promote ethnic fairness in the court and the stated goals of the court's Office of Diversity and Inclusion also reflect the court system's commitment to diversity. However, I do believe that despite this commitment, we must remain cognizant that there is much work to be done, and I do remain hopeful that it can be done. I remain equally hopeful. And uh, Rosemary, thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for your service to the courts and to the people of the state of New York. Thank 